0: I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, hey, welcome, Solar Warrior. Thank you so much for lending me your ears and the only non-renewable resource you've got, your time, of course. Wherever you are, you could be doing many other things. Perhaps, like me, you're washing dishes or maybe you're walking the pup like some other solar warriors tend to do. Maybe you're out for a run like Drew or driving like so many others, wherever you happen to be. Thank you for tuning in. If you're new here, I truly am honored and I hope that you'll stick around all the way through to the end and dig into some of the additional resources that we always leave on the show notes page for each and every episode. Today's entrepreneur is tackling a subject that I'd wager many in our tribe have struggled to wrap their hands or head around, carbon accounting. Determining the value of carbon offsets, registering and retiring them, deciphering what the heck is a wreck, who generated it, where the actual value lies, and for whom it can be claimed in the almighty ESG score is a ball of yarn well worth unraveling. I've recently become acquainted with Alex Stewart, founder of Standard Carbon, which has been dubbed the QuickBooks of Carbon. Alex brings a wealth of experience from 14 years career as a civil servant and more than 13 years in renewable energy. And he has a very strong understanding of the intersection between policy and innovation and how governments and corporate clients can achieve economic growth while still meeting their decarbonization goals. Today, we'll dig into the carbon asset management and carbon offset sectors and answer questions that I wasn't even sure I knew how to ask. But Alex admirably navigates the topic. If you're part of our Resource Labs community, you may recall that Alex gave one of our first office hours talks way back in the fall on this very subject. After you've given today's episode a listen, I'd recommend that you join our community and hop over to the Discord if you'd like to connect with him personally or listen to that deeper dive where our community asked Alex your questions directly also please subscribe to the show so you won't miss out on our twice weekly content just like this you can check out more than 565 additional founder stories and startup advice as well as find the community i just mentioned over at mysuncast.com for now get ready to tune up your skills solar warrior as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on suncast As we dive into the ways that corporations address their carbon footprint, and we try to help folks understand better how they can serve those entities with products and services like building solar projects or providing carbon accounting services, it is really important to understand the underlying economics required to do such carbon accounting One of the folks that I've recently become acquainted with is a man by the name of Alex Stewart. Perhaps you've heard Alex on other podcasts talk about a company he's been running for the last four years called Carbon Block. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about Carbon Block, but also about Standard Carbon, the company that has evolved from his experience in helping corporations, families, and municipalities reduce their carbon footprint. And uh, we're going to talk about his uh, 14-year civil career and 13-year renewable energy career. But first, let me welcome Alex Stewart to Suncast.
1: Thanks so much, Nico. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Alex, you've got a fascinating background. We are definitely going to dive into some of the things that have led you to where you're at right now. But I'd like to start in the outset here with a really simple premise. I'd like to know, how would you describe the problem that you've created Standard Carbon to solve? As though you're talking to my tween son who very much wants to be an engineer like you.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we believe that... The requirement for businesses to explain their carbon footprint is growing, and that's moving from a nice to have to a must have. And so, there are regulations being formed around this, both uh, in the US and then globally, that require and standardize how those companies are going to explain this to people. And therefore, Right now, that's being served in a very manual process. You hire a consultant, and they would come in and assist, and that we are developing software to automate that in order to remove the friction from creating that information and communicating it.
0: I see, to make it easier for companies to communicate and meet regulations around disclosing how they're mitigating their carbon footprint, so to speak. So as such, I'd love it if you would introduce me to Standard Carbon, Why is it that what you've created with Standard Carbon is going to help solve this problem? So
1: Standard Carbon is an accredited greenhouse gas verifier under the ISO 14,065 standard. That gives us the authority to conduct uh, greenhouse gas audits on projects and companies. And what we've done is take that experience, that expertise, and then apply it to our software platform. And so as users are becoming familiar with that, they know that that ultimately is, is backed up by a very rigorous process for us to obtain that accreditation and then maintain that accreditation. And so, you know, that's the the, the seal of approval here that we, uh, we bring to bear on what we're doing.
0: Love it. So what solutions or alternatives exist or are available for corporations otherwise today?
1: Yeah. So there's, there's everything from sort of free online calculators that can get you numbers, there are sort of more complicated, again, free tools that are available, but that becomes something that's a little bit more academic in nature. And then sort of at the far end, there are consultants who can provide these kinds of uh, services to corporations. And so where there's a real lack, in our opinion, is, is serving the small, medium businesses who form part of supply chains, but don't necessarily have the wherewithal to spin up an entire department to uh, tackle this like a large corporation might.
0: Now I understand why I've heard you refer to it as the QuickBooks for carbon accounting. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking as you're saying this, wow, this is the, the perfect disaggregation of information where uh, so many other industries have been, I'll call it disrupted predominantly. You see knowledge bases sitting in the heads of folks who have spent a lot of time learning consultants, accountants, etc., and who sell the access to that knowledge, even though what they are otherwise perhaps using in terms of servicing the client are pretty standard forms. It's just the knowledge of how to use those forms, which forms to use and how to submit them. <laughs> so it sounds like you sell predominantly to small to medium businesses. If you unpack it a bit. Who is this product predominantly oriented for and what specific problems in their current business operations, or the ones that you perceive they will have, are you addressing for them?
1: So there's a bit of a of a difference between who the intended end user of the information is versus sort of who's actually using the product. And so at this point, the user, the person actually, you know, with fingers on keyboards, intends on being a bookkeeper. So whether that's an internal bookkeeper or an external bookkeeper, what we're looking to do is capture emissions information at source. And so we treat the general ledger on the expense side as the single source of truth. And so right now, when a bookkeeper takes an invoice and, and plugs it into their system, they will record you know, date, vendor, and then some kind of, some kind of description on that and, and a price. What we're looking for is a little bit of extra information that's typically contained on that invoice that we can then take that and extrapolate and and figure out what the carbon footprint is from that purchase. Because when you do a purchase, you're ex- exchanging money for goods and services. When you do that transaction, there's also a carbon footprint attached to whatever it is that you're buying. And so that's really the moment where we believe that exchange of information needs to include the carbon footprint. And so really what we're desiring to do is be able to offer someone on a per invoice basis what the carbon footprint is. And so when I buy something from your company, right, I'm not only getting the price of whatever that thing is that I'm buying from you, but I'm also getting the carbon information from you at the same time so that that can then seamlessly roll up throughout the supply chain so that you can start to look holistically at, you know, where are the emissions coming from in the product that I'm buying?
0: It sounds to me and I've been trying to wrap my head around this for a better part of a year now since I did my green hydrogen series last uh, December there is this notion of scope one, two, and three emissions. Where does the kind of accounting that you're offering through standard carbon sit in someone's understanding at a corporate level of their scope one, two or three emissions
1: so just to to make sure that that your your listeners you know are starting from the same point here, mm-hmm. scope one emissions refer to things that are under your control. Scope two emissions are, come from purchases from the utility, and then scope three comes from your supply chain. And so it's important to understand that your scope one and two emissions are somebody else's scope three emissions. And so you know emissions profiles look a lot like an iceberg, where scope one and two above the surface that you can see because you, can, you control that data are you know, a lot easier to measure. Whereas up to 80% of a firm's carbon footprint comes from their supply chain. And so really what we're aiming to do is allow that supply chain to roll that information up to the, the end user of that information in a way that's seamless and then most importantly auditable. Because you know as you're looking at doing the audits on these things, you're going, well, how do I trusts this information. And that's, that's a key feature that we're looking for. It's
0: fascinating too. And when, when folks who are familiar with this topic, understand that major corporations, namely Walmart, as a great example, who wield an incredible amount of leverage and force in the marketplace are requiring reductions in scope three emissions. They're requiring reductions in scope one emissions all the way down their supply chain, which then rolls up. And the question I hear someone in the office at Walmart asking that you want to address is, well, how do we actually audit and account for the emissions that they're rolling up that we can claim this T-shirt has in its carbon footprint? Is that accurate? Yeah, you got it. Another thing that you have said that catches my ear, and I think it's quite provocative, especially in a world where Wall Street claims that ESG is alive and well, you say ESG is dead. I'd like to invite you to explain.
1: Yeah, thanks. And it is provocative insofar as it appears to dismiss the moral imperative that goes along with ESG. And that's not the intent at all with, mm-hmm. with the statement of ESG is dead. You know, ESG metrics are important for being a good corporate citizen. You know, they are statistically linked with better financial performance of a firm. And that that's all well and good. And we definitely do not want to stand in the way of the continued societal progress that ESG represents. The reason that we say ESG is dead is that when we look at the regulations that are being put forward by the Securities Exchange Commission, they are specifically targeting climate disclosures. And climate disclosures relate to your greenhouse gas footprint of your operations and then your supply chain's operations. The regulator is not regulating ESG disclosures. And so they're not saying this is how you are going to report your ESG numbers. What they're saying is this is how you're going to report your climate numbers to us. And that's very, very specific. And, and by that, that measure, you know, we believe that this initial push towards ESG is going to end up taking a backseat as these companies now are forced into a compliance position by the regulator.
0: Alex, I think that on the surface... Folks will often nod and smile when they hear about carbon offsets. But the reality is, A, a lot of folks don't really understand what they are for or what they represent. And B, they don't always have the greatest reputation. Certainly in the solar industry, we've gotten caught up in the spin cycle of whether or not these fictitious things that are supposed to offset carbon are being retired properly or double used, et cetera. So I'd like to ask if you can help unpack what exactly is an offset? What's it meant to do? And how is it a critical stepping stone to help us decarbonize the economy?
1: Yeah, so we believe that carbon offsets represent the most capital efficient means of achieving decarbonization, but that they've been certainly maligned in the culture wars. And so a carbon offset is meant to cover the spread between incumbent technology and something new. Because incumbent technologies have economies of scale, they've, they've sorted out all their supply chain, notwithstanding the current situation, they've got all their installations in place, all that other kind of stuff. And so they've got that entrenched advantage that anything new, whether that be solar, wind, the other technologies that we're working with, they have to struggle to overcome that and achieve price parity. A carbon offset is intended on covering the difference between the new and the legacy way to do things. That That is the m- financial mechanism that a carbon offset is represented or is intended on doing.
0: I don't know if I've ever heard anyone explain it quite so eloquently. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, very helpful. When you were studying high school, college, did you always imagine that you would kind of choose this career oriented employee style work, or did you have early signs of entrepreneurship?
1: Well, my father did, you know, proceed down the path of entrepreneurship into a couple of ventures. And so I had experience exposure to that, but frankly, it was not on my radar you know, I studied, I, I really enjoyed academia, I enjoyed my studies, I, I really liked the nature of science, I liked the process, I liked sort of the structure and the order of that, and the problem-solving elements that, that that contained, and so as I entered my career, when you get at a university, you're just kind of looking for any job that, that you can get your hands on, and uh, I had kept in touch with a professor, and he had sort of pushed it out to everybody that, hey, there's this position that's opened up in Winnipeg, Manitoba, know, that is directly related to, to what you guys were studying in school. And so I just kind of went, Hey, I'm, I'm young. I have nothing holding me back. Let's, uh, let's see what, what that's, what that's like. And so I I was just kind of how that had happened. Uh, And then certainly that 14 year career in in the civil servants uh, did actually teach me a tremendous amount about uh, sort of a wide variety of things that I do use today as well. And so it has proven useful as far as a, The life experience that came along with that, but it was definitely not a straight line from, you know, studying how back injuries happen to (laughs) carbon credits. There's, you know, there's a long and winding path.
0: That's for sure. And the, the long and winding path often can unpack a little bit more for folks to understand sort of how you think about the problems you're solving. You know, one of the things that I look at is how one might transition from the equivalent of OSHA in the United States up in Canada Over to developing and installing vertical axis micro wind turbines. And for those who are unfamiliar, it's one thing to get into the wind industry in the wind belt of any main country. And it's quite another to start developing back in the aughts, vertical axis micro wind turbines. When did you first get exposed to the idea of clean energy and wind? And how did you know this is where? you wanted to focus your career?
1: It all starts from uh, an innate curiosity. You know, I'm a very curious person by nature. And so I'm, I'm constantly exploring ideas and, and opportunities. And where that had come from was, we were just starting to see solar start its price fall. And sort of as we looked around myself and, you know, business partner, I saw towers downtown, and said, you know, we're already putting structures quite high up in the sky and 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 envisioning that there'd be a lot of wind up there. And so, you know, what are we doing with that unused rooftop real estate and sort of trying to wrap our heads around, well, why aren't there turbines up there? And that was sort of where that had originally come from. And then it pivoted inevitably into one of the unique elements of a vertical axis wind turbine is that you can generate high torque at low speed. And so that actually turns out that is extremely valuable for pumping applications. So whether that's pumping water or pumping air. And so then we, we sort of chased that down the rabbit hole and actually filed a patent around a compressed air energy storage system. And so, yeah, we were going to use the turbines to compress air and use that as, our, as, as the battery, as it were, and then pull it back out of that compressed vessel uh, at a later point in time
0: especially useful for a high-rise or or an office building. That's an interesting application I've not heard anyone say.
1: Yeah, and there's reasons why you don't see them up there. And so we've, you know, after a great deal of conversations with engineers and whatnot, those structures simply aren't built for that kind of resonance and forces and all that other kind of stuff up there. You can design a building for it, but retrofitting something like that is not as an impossible task.
0: When did it become clear to you that, The solar projects, the developers, the industry as a whole had not yet come up with a way to serve the eventual carbon market uh, requirements that you felt were going to be certain.
1: So there is a disconnect between the industry players and the finance in solar, especially, especially the behind the meter type solar where, you know, home's Residences, agricultural applications, that kind of stuff, sort of the sub-megawatt-sized installs, because the very often those installations are supported through some kind of government action. So there's some kind of rebate or tax credit or a variety of different means that a government at whatever level will use to stimulate the adoption of this. And what we realized was that those funding agencies have a natural limit on their expenditures. So depending on what administration's in power, there's certain there, there's always a respect for the public purse. So this thing has a budget and we can spend this amount of money to achieve this policy objective. What we started to think was, why can't we return the government money back to them through a carbon offset, which would then ideally remove one of the limiting factors that prevents these government programs from continuing, you know, to accelerate because government is sort of uniquely positioned to be able to incentivize behaviors in a way that private sector just just simply can't do.
0: I see. So in a sense, through carbon offsets, you give them the ability to recycle their capital more quickly.
1: Yeah, that was the original genesis point for carbon block, which was at the time we were solar installers. We had shifted from wind into solar. And we were, you know, looking at this going, you know, why are there limits to this program? Why doesn't this program expand, continue on? Why is there a time limit or a budget limit attached to this thing? And, you know, that, that line of thinking eventually led back to, okay, well, the government only has a certain amount of money that they're willing to commit to this thing. And that's what got us thinking, hey, if we can cycle that, those funds back to them, ideally, they can continue to, to accelerate decarbonization.
0: Before we go a little deeper into understanding the the two sides of a carbon ledger and how carbon block and standard carbon can help anyone listening and their customers, uh, I want to make sure that folks um, that were clear on how your companies have come together and how you think about innovation. You mentioned you had a patent. You mentioned both the wind turbine business and running a solar company. Which company was it that you came up with the idea that you ultimately ended up pitching on Dragon's which is the Canadian version of Shark Tank.
1: So that was the vertical axis wind turbine piece. And that was a turbine that we had designed for low RPM, high torque, specifically around sort of pumping applications. We actually took our full, our full size demo, put it on the back of a, of a trailer, drove it across Northern Ontario, all the way down to Toronto actually pitched. Uh, and then as we were driving back, we we tried to come back through the U.S. because it's a it's a bit of a shorter route. And we got to the border and the border guards looked at us and went, you're not bringing that in here. <laughs> and, and if we let you in, there is no way the Canadian side is going to let you cross the border with that. So, you know, e- either go and get some brokerage papers and a whole long, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, we ended up driving all the way back across northern Ontario as well. We uh, we ran out of gas actually at one point uh, doing that. Um, you know, we it's the height of hubris when you take a wind turbine that is specifically designed to catch the wind and then put it on the back of an open flatbed and drive it across. It is the exact opposite of aerodynamic. It is designed in the opposite fashion. And so needless to say, our gas mileage was absolutely atrocious.
0: Hey, family, one quick reminder here that if you haven't yet joined Resource Labs, you are missing out. It is our outstanding community. It's the evolution of Suncast moving from presentations, you listening to us talk, to conversations, our community involved in conversations as varied as powering Australia to green hydrogen to crypto and so many other things. Our newsroom is full of great insights. The main chat and even our RE Plus where to party at channel have been popping off. We've got more than 100 folks enjoying the community and I would invite you in. You can do that at mysuncast.com forward slash community. Come see how Resource Labs can help you grow your influence, impact, and income. See you inside. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast and you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed They've got the top bankability in the industry. Hex uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Can you talk a bit about your thoughts around building the right team for your businesses. How did you think about getting the founder in that company? I'm not sure if that if that team has also uh, sort of joined you in Carbon Block and Standard Carbon, but talk a bit about, as a founder, picking the right early team members and the, the advantage or disadvantage you can create.
1: Sure. So it has been the same uh, co-founder uh, that I've had all the way along. Uh, a good friend of mine now, uh, Justin Phillips. And so, one of the key things I think that, that we realized early on in our discussions, I mean, even prior to forming business together was just sort of different points of view on the world and different, obviously different skill sets that I didn't have. And that conversely, he saw in me that, you know, that I had. And then the other thing I think that's really critical in those early founding members is the ability to disagree with each other. Specifically, you know, I saying the words, I disagree and not having that turn into some kind of ego battle and, and sort of just trying to browbeat someone, but actually say, I disagree with this perspective or this path and here's why. And then sort of evaluate that on, on face value, regardless of where that comes from. And that was, I think one of our strengths was the, <laughs> the ability to argue and find sort of the best path forward using our different points of view
0: when we think about the disconnect that you identified in the industry around carbon offsets and you began carbon block to try and address those disconnects kind of what i gathered in the way that you have told the story is there there was this realization that esg audits were becoming more prevalent and carbon accounting rather than carbon offset capture was a deep need in the industry, or it was a need that was becoming felt. Do you remember when that realization occurred to you? Where, how, how, what kind of conversations were you in that led you to understand that folks, like mainly you know, environmental scientists and others were in need of a, a better way to address this problem?
1: So it came out of actually discussions with accountants, realizing that it was accountants that needed another way And what had happened was that as Standard Carbon managed to get itself into an accelerator program with the U.S. Accounting Association, uh, CPA.com, and so any accountant that you know belongs to a state-level organization, which then rolls up into a federal organization. So we were meeting with that federal organization, went to New York. When the CEO of a 300,000-member organization is telling you, that this is a major problem for our profession that you know we don't have the educational background to evaluate environmental information and then translate it into the financial information that the people that we you know produce our reports for whether those be CFOs or shareholders or other other executives or other you know board level that you know we are in a really bad spot as a profession. And so it was during those discussions that that I had just kind of casually said, if we build software that translates environmental science information into financial language, would that be helpful for you as a profession? And they went, Absolutely. And you know, what you're doing with carbon offsets is very interesting and carbon offsets are going to be important and we recognize that. But there's a more fundamental need here that we as a profession can't yet grasp what's happening out there from a, a climate disclosure point of view. And so that sort of was the moment that that was the aha moment where we pivoted to building what we're now calling that climate accounting software, which is sort of an, ev- an evolution beyond just sort of carbon accounting and is a much more holistic approach to the problem.
0: And that, of course, is what we know is standard carbon. Yes. You know, it's, it's fascinating because I'm learning about not just the technical need that you're addressing, but the language. I like to say I was joking with a friend over the weekend. At the very least, at the end of a Suncast interview, you should be able to appear more interesting in a dinner conversation with others who are not deep scientists in the field of solar, right? And even for those who perhaps are, you can follow along and hold your own and not feel like a a wallflower who has nothing to contribute, I would say categorically, I would now fare better in a conversation about carbon offsets. What other projects have come along that you've seen that have attempted to address this kind of market? I mean, I'm reminded when you say carbon block, obviously a lot of folks think about blockchain. It's the first thing that might come to mind. And And it reminded me of SolarCoin as an example, which itself tried to create a registry for REX for solar. What types of projects have existed like that that you're privy to, and and why haven't they succeeded where you attempt where you expect to succeed?
1: So Carbon Block does have uh, some blockchain based technology. We are patent pending on two innovations in that space. So we have seen a lot of work around the marketplace development. The thesis being that a blockchain is very well suited for a carbon offset because a carbon offset is intangible by its nature, right? It, it represents data. A carbon offset is actually proving a counterfactual. And by that, I mean, like, it's very hard to prove a negative, meaning how would I prove to you and your listeners that I've never climbed Mount Everest? Mm-hmm. You know, you can make inferences. And if you knew me, it's likely that I've never climbed Mount Everest, but I'm talking about proving that I've never climbed Mount Everest. And so, you know, that's really what a carbon offset is, is is, is proving that that ton of greenhouse gases either got stored in the ground, like a sequestration, or didn't get emitted. There was an avoided emissions. And so blockchain is well-suited for solving that specific problem. But what we've seen in the past is technical teams tackling this issue without a good understanding of how the carbon markets function. Because right now, when we say the words carbon market, people think like the stock market, where I understand how the New York Stock Exchange works. If I want to go buy shares in Google, I can go and see what the price is, and I can use some kind of brokerage, whether that's an online trading platform or whatever else you're going to do. I can tap a button, I can buy a share of Google. That kind of marketplace doesn't exist for carbon, meaning you can't just go and purchase offsets. There is a much more opaque system setup that doesn't really allow for effective price discovery. And so you've got a lot of sort of dark knowledge, dark information that isn't coming to light. And that's where you get a lot of the the questionable behaviors, where you get a lot of the, did this actually make a difference? I mean, there's a lot of corporate dollars flowing. And if they're not making a difference, I'm offended when stuff like that happens. And so That's where we've seen other blockchain-type projects struggle is going, okay, we're going to take carbon offsets and we're going to put them on chain, but then they struggle to attract buyers or they struggle to attract new carbon credits. And so you need all of those participants in order to actually form a marketplace and an exchange. And so that's sort of where we've seen some of the, the boneyard is in folks trying to spin up marketplaces without having the market participants there.
0: Can you unpack what it means when a system doesn't allow for effective price discovery?
1: So as it stands right now, when you look at the price of a stock on a stock exchange, that is the true price of that stock. And so the whole point of an exchange is so that you've got enough people looking at a company, looking through like their reputation, their financial statements, their products, what they're doing, all that kind of stuff. And then them making a decision with their wallet about what the price of that share should actually be. And if there's a disagreement and you want to sell it at this price and I want to buy it at this price, then either somebody else has to step in the middle there or one of us moves and then we agree on what the price is going to be. And then that is the true price of what this is using the amalgamated knowledge of all of the market participants because, and that's where you see a price swing in a stock is because somebody gets a piece of information and they go, hold on a second, I don't think this thing's priced properly.
0: And this is why Forex trading works so well also. Yeah, and so
1: that kind of price discovery isn't happening in the carbon markets, meaning what should this carbon offset actually be sold for? What are people actually buying that carbon, that kind of carbon credit for? Because there's a wide variety of different projects that are reducing emissions, but they are different prices. And then there's, there's all kinds of predatory behavior that's happening where someone's going to come along and convince you who doesn't know any better that this is what the price is. And then they turn around and they sell it at a much, much higher price. And they're the ones receiving that benefit. Whereas really the benefit of that carbon market dollar should flow to whoever it is that took the risk to do the decarbonization activity. And so when we say price discovery that's really what we're referring to is just what are the real prices of these things and can you bring enough market participants in together to actually establish what the true price of of this offset should be.
0: You said there are different kinds of carbon credits. My understanding of what you're suggesting uh, as different kinds of carbon credits might break down to the kinds of renewable energy credits that come off of solar versus the difference between that and target or Home Depot or Lowe's selling a bunch of LED light bulbs which create negawatts. Can you speak to that a bit because I feel like you probably have a better way to explain the different kinds of carbon off- carbon credits?
1: It's important to understand that at the outset, sort of, sort of right at the very peak of that, are we talking about a credit in a regulated environment or are we talking about a credit in a voluntary environment? And so a regulated carbon offset is one where a corporation must by law or regulation, purchase and participate in some kind of carbon offsetting program. So California, for example, has a a large and functioning marketplace. The European Union has a pan sort of region approach as well. We do see a, a similar kind of market in Alberta, the province of Alberta. So those are regulated markets. The vast majority of the time when we think carbon credits, we think the voluntary sector. And the voluntary sector is made up of Buyers, corporations who want to achieve some kind of environmental objective. So, whether they want to be carbon zero, net zero, or they might want to release a line of product like a set of sneakers that are carbon neutral or something like that. And so, there's a, a, an objective that the corporation wants to achieve for whatever reason, whether that's reputation, shareholder pressure, employees wanting that, whatever the the driver is, it's not something that they have to do, it's something that they want to do. And so those voluntary offsets, that's where you see a much greater price disparity because it connects back to the story that underpins that offset, where in a regulated marketplace, an offset's an offset's an offset, and they're, they're fungible, they're interchangeable with each other. On the voluntary side, you get into questions like, Does it align with our brand? Does it align with our mission and values, right? How certain are we of the data, right? And so you see a wide variety of prices depending on those factors.
0: And I guess also, I mean, what's occurring to me is like, you can get carbon credits from selling or claiming credits around anything that is going to reduce emissions. So one way is to plant trees. That was a really popular way 10, 15 years ago, still is now in many places in the world. And as I mentioned, LEDs, solar, wind, increasingly carbon capture and storage attempts, as well to create carbon offsets. So, for the listener to understand, you know what I'm learning here is this this difference, which makes sense that there's a two sided market that's very well established in the EU, in the EU and and uh, now in California for a regulated environment where you must buy offsets versus the voluntary sector. I love what you said. It could be someone who's either for shareholder pressure, reputation, or even consumer product attributes like a zero carbon footprint sneaker that will drive price disparity. Is the price disparity in those voluntary markets simply because through non-regulation, through no force of government to buy them, there doesn't exist an open and visible marketplace that credits can be bought and sold? Is that that the main understanding?
1: That's half of it, yeah. So the half is that, price discovery part that we talked about. The other half is because a carbon credit is there because it needs to be there, because there's some difference in price, you end up with some projects that have to have a very high price. So for example, there's a direct air capture project in Iceland that Shopify purchased offsets from at, I believe it was $500 a ton for those those offsets. Now that is, you know, quite a high price to pay, but the project needed that kind of price in order to make it you know, effective because it is still just so new to literally have fans sucking CO2 out of the air, and then they bubble it up through volcanic rock and it mineralizes. But you know, that was an example of a project that required that kind of price input in order to make it financially feasible. Now, you could argue that $500 a ton isn't feasible in the long term, and so they've got to hustle to bring their unit costs down so that it makes those offsets more affordable because the technology is scaling.
0: Well, on the one hand, the developer of this direct air capture needs to hustle to bring their costs down. But the other side of the equation, and one that I and many listeners might be thinking, is why the heck would Shopify pay 500 a ton for that project or for those credits when presumably there are hundreds of solar and wind projects they could buy credits from as well?
1: That comes down to you know differentiation in terms of right now we're talking about shopify right we're not necessarily talking about the buyer of the offset for that solar project or that wind project and so another important thing here is that carbon offsets even though they've they they might have a poor reputation in some circles there's actually a lot of structure around how a carbon offset gets created and so it's governed by an iso standard it has very specific sort of audit frameworks that have to take place. And then you've also got a greenhouse gas program like Vera, for example, who sets the rules that all of the projects must follow and then report on an annual basis. And then they retire the offsets as well. And so there is in the voluntary market, there is still structure. And so it's not just, hey, I've gone out and bought 10 LED bulbs. I can claim a carbon credit. Yes, you are reducing emissions, but but carbon credit specifically refers to one ton GHG reduction that has been gone through a GHG program and it has a serial number attached to that. And that serial number comes from that whole audit process. And so there is a lot more rigor and structure, I think, that folks may not necessarily be aware of. It's a very Byzantine system to do it. It's very archaic, very slow, which was fine you know, 20 years ago when we were serving sort of that sort of the environmental science sort of pet project part of this. But now as we've shifted into this being more of a a capitalist endeavor, that I think those things have to speed up in order to accommodate scale.
0: If you could wave a magic wand and on January 1st of 2023, the industry would be operating without the inefficiencies it currently has, what would you see being removed from the industry, or what would need to happen? What would you change and do differently?
1: I would say that getting good visibility on supply chain emissions is going to be key to accommodating the rapid adoption of the technologies that you very often feature on, on your podcast. And by that, I mean, once you can look at your vendors and figure out where your emissions are coming from, you can make decisions about the vendors that will drive your own emissions down. Meaning, you know, if I can make a choice to purchase a product domestically, US manufactured product, even though the price may be a little bit higher, when we look at the carbon impact, that carbon impact is much greater when you're bringing in something from overseas. And so I can envision a world where if, you know, if I had a magic wand that, you know, on January 1st, that these executives are meeting with their board and saying, look, you 've told me to achieve a twenty five percent reduction in our firm's emissions I've been able to resource some of our product to domestic manufacturers so we've seen a one percent erosion on our margin which bad but you, we've seen we've achieved a twenty five percent reduction in our emissions which is what you guys told me to do and that's the world that I envision where now executive compensation gets tied in with GHG emissions because that actually sits on the balance sheet because until it's on the balance sheet, recognized as an asset or a liability, that you're not necessarily going to get the the, the C-suite attention to that. Where you know that's something that that I would very much love to see.
0: I love that. Uh, I don't think I've asked the Magic wand question. It was one that came to me through an interview, an interview style that John Belazare from Solana Computing engaged in in one of his previous companies for exploratory. Exercise and it, it seemed apropos in this situation because we very still, very much still are in the infancy of greenhouse gas and carbon emission accounting. You know, companies like yours are making strident efforts towards providing workflows and and uh, software stacks that allow for us to do it uh, more efficiently and effectively. And without that, it is a bit of chest beating and hubris to say we're going to be emissions free in our supply chain uh, when there's no real way to account for it. It still comes down to chicken and egg in some cases, right? We needed a Walmart to say, we're going to measure and account for our scope three emissions all the way through our supply chain in order for companies like Standard Carbon to say, well, that seems like it's worth doing. And not just Walmart, I just use them as an example because they're very vocal about that as a piece of, uh, as a driver to their own reduction in greenhouse gas emissions.
1: You know, I think it's important to understand that the concept of carbon pricing, while not necessarily new did in fact win the Nobel Prize in economics in 2017. And so fundamentally, carbon pricing puts environmentalists and capitalists on the same side of the table for the first time ever. Because you put a price now on that externality and capitalists are going to do what they do best, which is reduce expenses. And so if they're going, oh, geez, that now has a cost. Let's figure out how to deal with that. Let's figure out how to minimize that cost. And the environmentalists are sitting there going... Perfect. Yep, that's exactly what we want you guys to do, right? You're the big brains of capital. You're the the captains of enterprise here. We need you guys to make those decisions that are going to drive emissions down, because you know carbon offsets are really not fit for human consumption. They're not meant for you and I. Yeah. And that's sort of one of the big lies I think that environmentalism 1.0 sort of spun out to people, which is if you love the planet, you're going to buy less stuff. Mm. You're going to make these changes. You're going to switch from a meat diet to a vegetarian diet. And it's it's a, really, it's all on you. Look at your carbon footprint. And environmentalism 2.0 really says, this is a corporate problem. You know, these are decisions that corporations are making that the average consumer doesn't really get much say in. I mean, I need shoes. I need pants. I need the stuff that I need, right? And, and I don't either have the wherewithal or even the information for me to be making low carbon decisions. So for you to be pointing the finger at me saying it's my carbon footprint, when, when you look at sort of the decisions that corporations are making, that's really where that blame lies. And so mm-hmm. we're now starting to see that adoption of the recognition that, yes, this is a, a corporation and a government level issue. And, you know, mark my words that global carbon pricing is going to result in the greatest amount of onshoring of manufacturing we've ever seen. Because once you start to price in the carbon from the transportation elements of it and the manufacturing, because many of these overseas locations will still use coal. So now all of a sudden, if you have to account for that in your product, whether that be in the price or whether that be some kind of customer disclosure, now all of a sudden... It's going to make a lot more sense to buy locally where you can. And and obviously, we're not going to just disrupt the global supply chain, but that I think we're going to start to see a lot of pressure to more regional types of manufacturing because it eliminates the exposure to that carbon price that comes with looking at sort of overseas manufacturing.
0: What you just said is Bloomberg and Cheddar Newsworthy, right? The ability to say Thank you. that carbon accounting will drive the greatest onshore manufacturing we've ever seen because it eliminates the exposure that carbon price comes with looking at overseas manufacturing to that carbon price that comes looking. at. I mean, that's like, dude, that is podcast and frankly, like news gold because they just want to be able to say like, this is, you know, this is, this is what we mean. Like you need to be looking at nearshoring and Jesus, right? like, I think one of the things that whether we like it or not, Donald Trump and the Trump administration will be known for is that they actually did start to drive nearshoring and reshoring of manufacturing and how it actually makes sense. <laughs> Even when 10, 15 years ago, it didn't make sense. But the new economics of environmentalism 2.0 is that it has to make sense or else the way we're doing things are just going to drive us down the wrong path.
1: I don't know the exact quote, but, you know, it's something like a tomato crosses the U.S. 10 times before it becomes ketchup. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it gets peeled over here and seeded over here and then colored over here and then sugared over here and then packaged over here and then da-da-da-da-da. Like, it's just bananas. But that that was how we set up our supply chains, right? And that that was legitimate and it worked. And I mean, it gave us the economic prosperity that we have now. But now we're starting to see these longer term sort of environmental ramifications that come with that. And so it's it's a very interesting time, for sure, because you've got not only geopolitical considerations, but you've also now got this environmental piece that, that isn't going away. The demand from the younger generation is there, and ultimately, I think, as those folks move into the seats of power, that that's only going to become more and more and more and more prevalent.
0: I'd love to know, are there any particularly salient lessons or takeaways for you, from the early mentors and leaders who may have had an impact on how you think about the work that you do or the way that you sort of sit in the role of founder and executive.
1: Great question. Uh, I think that you know I have been very much self-taught when it comes to that sort of leadership role, and I look back on my sort of life experiences, and I've I've always found that I've been drawn to leadership, not so much for the, the the pleasure, the ego side of it, but more from the, you know, I've got a vision and, and I can rally people to that. And so I think probably one of the biggest things that, that I had heard, um, and it actually came off of a, another podcast, but the idea being that, you know, go into the future and, and look around and see things that are obvious in the future, and then come back to the present and go, how do we achieve that? Because a lot of this stuff that we have now is obvious when you've got it in your hands. But the point of going from zero to one on that point is can be very challenging. And so I know at least Mark Andreessen has said that, you know, the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. And by that, I mean, you know, that that stuff is happening all around us for all kinds of different things that we're just not aware of yet and that that's coming and that continues to happen. And and that will always be a feature of, of what's going on. And so, you know, my ability to sort of have the vision that I've had throughout the various companies that I've run has always been to sort of do that exercise and look into the future, not, not, not look into the future, but be in the future, walk around in the future and see things and go, well, clearly that should be the way that it's done. And then come back and go, why isn't it that way? And then what are the specific small today steps that are required to get us from here to there? And so that's been uh, kind of my uh, approach to entrepreneurialism and sort of how that, that career has taken me to where I am today.
0: Are there any particular books that you've leaned on that, or that you've recommended or gifted fiction, nonfiction? For me, they're kind of all the same because they point to ways that we can learn from others that have come before us? I'd love to know if, you, if you'd share any. So the one
1: that jumps to mind is Pitch Anything by Oren Klaff. And he does a very good job of breaking down how humans negotiate with each other from a neuroscience point of view. He coins it neurofinance. And he, he basically has said, you know, when we talk to each other, you think that there's one rational brain talking to another rational brain and we're using our four brains to talk with each other and he says that's not how humans get their information the first thing that we get is sort of the, the base of the brain is this fight or flight and then there's the mid part of the brain which is how does this person help me socially move up in my social hierarchy and then once you've passed those like actual mechanical like structural parts of the brain that the information has to flow through then you can exchange ideas. And so it's it's helped me when I do my pitches or when I do my presentations in how I frame sort of my approach to things, how I, my use of language and all that kind of stuff. And so I know pitch anything has been a, a key thing for me. And then the other one is the Code of Trust by, I think it's Robin Dreek, the Code of Trust. And it specifically talks about leadership. I think he's a former military but it specifically goes into how to build trust with your staff with your you know your customers and that kind of stuff and just how easy it is to break that how hard it is to build that and specifically what you can do in order to build that trust in a meaningful way not in any kind of hacky subservient type of way it's it's a self-serving way that is actually meant to foster your ability to create that trust with other people because of all the things that go into that. So those two books, I think, changed me. And those are ones certainly that I've recommended highly to other people.
0: Alex, I could do this for another hour, man. I find you um, infinitely fascinating and I appreciate the conversation. Where can folks that want to engage with you best find you? Are you most often on Twitter or LinkedIn? How do you like to be found?
1: We've actually started a, a Reddit page and that's oh, proven wow. to be really valuable for us as a business to be able to engage our community and start to foster the kind of smashing ideas together that, that result in new things kind of coming out of that. And so, you know, I would definitely re- recommend that. You could certainly take a look at uh, www.climateaccounting.com for updates with respect to the software as it comes forward.
0: How do I find the Reddit page?
1: Climate Accounting.
0: Okay. So it's r slash climate accounting. Is that right?
1: I believe so. Yeah.
0: I'm looking for it now. I want to link to it. So the subreddit is Climate Accounting. I'm going to join it. Look for me there on, as an Eco Suncast. Kind of obvious. We'll link to it here in the show notes, as well as linking to your website, Climate Accounting, the world's best clim- climate accounting software, according to your website. So I really appreciate so much uh, your taking the time to join us here for a fascinating look at carbon offsets and carbon accounting. I have one final question for you when we look out over our aggressive uh uh, targets for our industry and humanity i like to think about what we're doing you said that you like to go into the future and bring back good ideas so i think about them as bold predictions what do you believe is the linchpin problem that we will solve to get us to decarbonize grid by 2050
1: i think it's going to be energy storage I think it's going to be decentralized energy storage. I think we're going to see uh, as we get to the mass adoption of electric vehicles and we start to use those as distributed storage assets that can be called upon by the utility. I think that's where we're really going to see that the key unlocking that grid. I mean, some of the energy storage technologies that are coming along are absolutely breathtaking. And so now it's just a question of sort of who's going to win, um, who needs that stimulus, where does that come from? Um, but really, I think once we get to deal with the intermittencies of renewables, that that's going to unlock a huge piece. And then really, that's where we can start to shift those fossil fuel generations away from being sort of baseload power to being more auxiliary power, sort of on a, on a need basis. And then ultimately, we're going to get to a point where those will will start to look to decommission those. That would be my prediction is that keep an eye on energy storage.
0: Yeah. Well, we're definitely watching closely to energy storage here on Suncast. I fully agree with you. Uh, by the way, if, you've, if you haven't read uh, Bill Nussie's book, Freeing Energy, he has a whole segment of the, of the book on what he calls local energy and decentralized energy storage and his fascinating look as you have done in the exercise that you shared with us here. What will it look like when we get there? And I would encourage everyone to go look at that too. As another third book recommendation here for you. Alex Stewart is the co-founder and chief executive at Standard Carbon and Carbon Block. And it has been fascinating to get to know you better today, Alex. I really appreciate you swinging by, taking some time to educate us on carbon credits. Thank you so much, Nico. This has been a blast. All right, all right, Solar Warrior. Well, that is a wrap on today's episode. Alex, I want to thank you. helping dig into a topic that I must confess, I have relatively zero knowledge around. I appreciate you answering some of what may have been generic or banal questions for those who are rec and carbon offset advanced users, so to speak. Of course, if that's you, I hope that you did enjoy the conversation generally of how Alex, as an entrepreneur, has decided to create a business to address this hard to account for asset. And I hope that if you came in like me with very little knowledge about exactly how this all works, well, you're going away with tools as you go out on the front lines day in and day out to help us charge and address this climate action that we need. Our solar warriors are well equipped and I look forward to having you once again. If you're eager to keep learning, as I mentioned, you can find the resources and highlights from this and every other discussion along with social media links that you connect with Alex, the book recommendations. The blog supports all of that. You click on the episode notes page at mysuncast.com. Of course, you can also find our community and other ways to work with us. Since I know you're going to be online as well, you rating this podcast would mean the world to me. If this is your first time and you're just listening in and, and you really enjoyed this podcast? Well, I'd encourage you to listen to another one. And if you've already been listening for a while and you do agree that this is a wealth of information and resource, would you be so kind as to go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash suncast and leave a rating and review your five star and enthusiastic review really does help others find this show. And it allows me to see in a small way, a token of appreciation that does in fact, give me the mojo, the extra juice to keep going, keep shouting into the void, calling to our future solar warriors and helping you all equip yourselves to tackle the problems that we have facing our climate and our community together. I want you to know that every Tuesday and every Thursday we have content just like this, tactical and practical advice and long form deep dives like this with Alex, where you can learn more about executives on the front lines of climate, solar, renewable energy hope you'll join us again next week and i want to thank our sponsors for helping make this content free so that you can tune in without having to pay anything of your pocket but you do have to pay attention you can learn more about our wonderful sponsors at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor remember you are what you listen to thanks again for showing up solar warrior it's half the battle